Well, good morning. I'm so thankful to have the opportunity to speak to you this morning. And for all those who are visiting and those watching online, welcome. And we're so glad that you're here and, and, and want you to know you're very special and very honored guests. And we're so thankful you're here and invite you to come back and be with us any chance you get. And uh, thank you, Tommy, for the worship service this morning. Wasn't that great? Uh, great worship. It was, yeah. That's a sermon in, of, in and of itself, isn't it? Uh, when, when Mike and Trent asked me to preach, I, I got really excited. And uh, I came home and I, I went up to Avery and I said, Avery, uh, they, they told me I was going to preach. And she said, well, that means one of two things. Either you did good enough last time for them to invite you to come back and speak again, or they're just really scraping the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> but for whatever reason they asked me, I am excited and, and thrilled to be here this morning. And um, then I, I sat down, was meeting with them, and they told me what I was going to be speaking on this morning. And I got even more excited because I don't think there's a lesson that's more important than the one that I get to share with you today. Which, uh, yes, for the unbeliever, obviously the gospel is the more, most important message we could preach, right? Absolutely. But once we become a Christian, I think this is the first and most important message that we need to hear, which is we're in for a battle. We're in for a fight. And so how are we going to prepare ourselves for that battle? And so I hope that you're ready this morning as we dive into this study. Uh, my lesson is entitled, Suit Up. <laughs> um, by the way, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6 if you've got that. Uh, we'll, be, we'll be there in a, a moment. The other day, I, I've been reading this book about Navy SEALs, and, and I was reading about uh, second... Seaman second class, his name is Ken Reynolds. And Ken Reynolds was on the demolition squad, which means that his job was to go in and wherever he was to blow things up and to do it really fast and not get killed. And so, so Ken is fighting in World War II. And he's heading towards Omaha Beach. And the mission was to attack and spearhead the Allied assault and, and, and to liberate Europe. And so here he goes. And, and, and as he's approaching the beach, and he knows that the enemy is there waiting for him, he said that, that several different scenarios started playing through his mind as to what it was going to be like. You see, because what his job was on this particular mission was to go in and, and, and blow out uh, um, several, I think it was 15, 60-foot-wide holes in the seawall that was there. And so he had a major task to go in and, and to perform. And the whole time he's doing it under a hurricane of enemy fire. And, and so he said that, that as he was getting close, he's getting nervous and ner more and more nervous and played all these scenarios through his head. But then he said there was uh, nothing, there was no scenario that he played through in his mind that could have prepared him for what he actually saw. He says that, that when the hatch opened and, and, and it was time for him to run off onto the beach, he said he looked to his right and he saw an enemy shell land into the boat next to him, igniting the explosives that that boat was carrying, that the demolitioners were carrying in that ship, and the whole thing went up into flames. All of them dead, just like that. He said he looked over to his left, saw another ship, uh, another boat that was approaching the beach too. It was in flames as well. They're all dead. And then the boat right next to him on his left was being targeted by a heavy machine gun from the beach. 
And he said he was watching one by one. His words were, they were dropping like flies. And he said they started to panic and began to just hop off the edges of the ship. He said none of them were ever seen again because their gear weighed them down so much that they were dragged to the bottom of the ocean and drowned. He said the the water was turning red from all the blood that, that was being spilled by his fellow soldiers. So as his own hatch opens and he begins to sprint through, uh, as he's just stepping off, his commanding officer is shot in the head right in front of him and is killed. And, and, and the troop, a lot of them hit their knees and hit the ground uh, trying to stay low from the enemy fire. But there was a few of his friends who didn't and they were killed right in front of him, three of them. And, and, and then on the beach, there's these things that are called hedgehogs. You know what a hedgehog is? Uh, they were the, the big uh, steel barriers is, is what they were, obstacles, big steel obstacles. And they're placed all over the shore, and the purpose of those things was to keep tanks from moving in. That was also a part of his job, is to go in and, and take out some of these barriers so that they could get their tanks in. And, and so when the team st- started uh, getting fired on like this, they ran for cover, and the only thing that was there was one of the steel hedgehogs. Well, Ken knew that, that these things, a lot of them were wired with explosives. And so he starts calling out, trying to get his team's attention so that they won't run and, and, and get blown up. But it was too late. The hedgehog they took cover under was rigged to explode. And he watched them all die. And then he said that one of his, his comrades, one of his teammates, actually survived the explosion. His arm was, was severed from the shoulder down. And he said he, he, he walks and he, and he picks up his, his own arm off the ground and is looking at it just in complete shock. I can't imagine. And, and then as he's holding his arm, looking at it, he gets shot in the head. Awful, awful scene. Awful scene. Here's what Ken says. Um, he says, there were bodies, body parts, and blood everywhere. He said, they were dying all around me. There were more killed and wounded on the beach than there were those of us left alive. But I thank God for those men like Ken and the rest who didn't stop, but they persevered and they kept fighting and didn't give up uh, because who knows where we would be this morning if it wasn't for those men and their bravery. You know, as I read about that, it, it blew my mind. And and I've never been a part of a physical war before, but I imagine that the most scary thing has to be right as you're you're getting ready to go into combat and you begin to think this could be my last day on earth. I I mean, I'm more than likely percentage wise not going to make it. What an awful thing. The fear of death. And, and, and there's several uh, books that have been written, movies that have been made that, t- that show how fear can sometimes just lock up a soldier and they're no good. H- have you ever heard of that before? They just get so scared, they just they hide and they can't move. Well, you know what? For the war that you and I are in this morning as Christians, death is even more scary for us, isn't it? Because the consequences for us in our war is far, far worse than physical death. You see, our consequences in the war that we're fighting is eternal separation from our God and eternal separation from those that we love with no hope of redemption. You see, that's a scary thing, isn't it? This war is a serious, serious war. And that's why I believe that there's no subject that I could speak on that's more dire and more needed than this. 
Those guys that were fighting Ken and several of the other men who fought, they were brave and they were courageous, and I thank God for that. But you know what? Can you just imagine for a second how brave and how courageous and how much they could have accomplished if they didn't have to worry about death? Stop and think about that for a second. What if they knew as Ken was approaching the beach, his thoughts would have been different, wouldn't it? He wouldn't have started playing all these awful scenarios through his head because why? He knows he's not going to die. And even better yet, what if he knew not only he wasn't going to die, what if he knew that his comrades and his teammates were all going to be saved too? How about that? You think he could have accomplished more? Absolutely. With that in mind, hold your finger in Ephesians and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 through 58. Are you there? All right. It says, When the perishable has been clothed in the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Listen to this. Death has been swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? What is Paul telling us? He's looking at you and me. He's saying you're in for a fight. Much more important and much more dire than any other war that's ever been fought. That's the war that you're in. And he says right here, you don't have to worry about dying in your war. Death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? Here's the answer. It's not there because Jesus already took it for us. We don't have to worry about dying. And then Paul keeps going. Look down, 1 Corinthians 15. And he says, Therefore, my dear brothers, because you don't have to worry about dying, because Jesus has already given you the victory, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Why is our labor in the Lord not in vain? Because we already have the victory. Jesus has already won the fight for us. Now listen, church, if, I, if that's not good news, I don't know what good news is this morning. Paul's telling us you're in for a fight. You're in for a, a, a fight where the consequences are eternal separation from God and from those you love. And he says, but here's the good news. You're not going to die. And your brothers and your sisters, they're not going to die either if you're on Jesus' side. That's some good news, isn't it? And, and so then, then we start to ask the question, well, uh, how do we stand firm? He says, therefore, stand firm. What, what do, how do we stand? What does that look like, Paul? Well, he tells us in Ephesians 6. Uh, uh, so turn back there to Ephesians chapter 6. Paul, uh, Trent talked about this last week in his sermon of standing firm against Satan and, and his schemes. How do we do that? Ephesians 6, 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand firm, stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. How do we stand firm? You put on the armor of God. And so this morning, that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, Paul is looking at us, and he says, unlike Ken Reynolds, unlike all those brave men and women who serve our country and give their lives to fight for us, he says, you're in for a war, but you're not going to die as long as you suit up. You just got to put on the armor of God. And, and you know what, Paul? <laughs> yeah, Ken, Ken Reynolds, let me, let me go there first. Ken Reynolds, his mission was a scary mission, wasn't it? I, I, mean, I mean, he's got to crawl and in, 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 in run in the face of enemy fire. 
And surely death is coming his way. And that's enough to scare anyone. And the massacre was great. But Paul is looking at us. And he's saying, in the most important war that's ever been fought, I'm not asking you to go run into the face of the enemy fire. I'm not asking you to do something crazy, to blow up seawalls and to, to stop these hedgehogs. He looks at you and he says, here's what I want you to do. Suit up. Just go put on armor and go stand on the side of Jesus and watch him fight for you. Can we do that, church? That's pretty easy, isn't it? He could have given us a great, difficult task. No, he laid that on Jesus. He said, I just need you to stand on his side. Exodus 14, verse 14 says, "You need or The Lord will fight for you. You just need to be still. Huh. Just get your armor on and go stand and watch, watch what God's going to do among you. That's some good news, isn't it? And so the question that we're left with this morning that we're going to answer is, well, okay, I need to, I need to stand firm. I need to put on the armor of God. So now we say, well, how do I do that? What does that look like? And Paul gets into that this morning. We'll look at the first two pieces of armor that we need to put on in our war. Firstly, Paul says you need to wear the belt of truth, number one. And number two, put on the breastplate of righteousness. So look at verse 14 with me. It says, stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist. The belt of truth. Let me ask you, what is truth? You know, what, what is Paul saying here when he says you need to wear the belt of truth? Well, a lot of times we, our minds immediately go to the Word of God, don't, doesn't it? That's natural. And, and, and is the Word of God, is the gospel of Jesus Christ the truth? Absolutely. But I don't think that that's what Paul is saying here. Do we need to be children of the Word? Absolutely. Absolutely. But let me tell you why I don't think that's what he's saying right here in this verse. Because down in verse 17, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. You know how I know that? Because <laughs> it says it in verse 17. Alright? So look at your Bibles. Read with me. Verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. There you go. So the belt of truth isn't the Word of God. The belt of truth is something different. Now, I think that the belt of truth and the, the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, they're very closely related. Okay? Absolutely. I just don't think they're identical. Here's the reason I say they're closely related. You know what a belt was used for back in Paul's day? What did it do? It held your sword. It did two things. It held your sword, and it also kind of held your robes back, too, because they were all out there fighting in their dresses, right? <laughs> and so, so they tie the belt up, and it keeps their garments real tight and close, and it also holds their sword. I don't think it was an accident that Paul said the belt is truth, and the sword, the, war is, the word of God, is the sword. I think he wanted to, make a, a, to show the close relationship there. Do you see that? You can't have truth without the word of God. You can't have the word of God without the truth. But... Oh, by the way, what else does a belt do? Holds up your pants, doesn't it? How embarrassing is it going to be when we get out there and we've got to fight the most important war in the world and, and the consequences is, is worse than any other consequence of death and we get out there and we start swinging our sword at the enemy and we lose our britches. <sighs> Not good, right? So we, this is important. We need to wear the belt of truth. So... The question is, well, what, what is he talking about? He's not talking about the Word of God specifically here. So what is he saying? Here's what the word truth means in this context. Genuineness. Genuineness. 
Paul is, is looking at us and he's talking about integrity. He is telling you and me that when we wear the belt of truth, we need to be an authentic Christian, a real Christian. When we put on the belt of truth, he's saying, don't just call yourself a Christian, live like it. Don't you think we need to wear the belt of truth in our culture today? Paul is looking at you and me, and when he says we need to wear the belt of truth, he's telling us, do not be fake. We have a word for a fake Christian, don't we? What's that word? Hypocrite. Hypocrite. There was this, uh, there was this young man, he was in desperate need of a job. He needed a job really badly. And... Uh, this guy, he'd been looking for a while and he couldn't find a position anywhere and he searched and he searched to no avail. But finally, he went to the town zoo one day and he saw hanging there in the window was a sign that said, now hiring. And, and, and so he goes in, he schedules an interview with the zoo owner. And, and a week later, here he is with the zoo owner and he's talking and, and, and he says, look, I just need a job. Uh, I'll do whatever. And the guy says, well, all our positions have already been filled. Uh, he said, we do have one, but nobody really wanted it. This guy said, look, I don't care what it is. I'll do whatever. You know, just, I, I just need the money. The guy said, okay, okay. Well, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Uh, you see, our, our gorilla died recently. And, and uh, I mean, the, the gorilla, it was our, our biggest attraction. And now our numbers are already going down. We're not going to be able to buy another one for a few months. And so we're trying to figure out what we're going to do to stay afloat until we have enough money to be able to purchase another gorilla. And he said, so what we need you to do is... is is put on a gorilla costume and go out in the gorilla cage and start acting like a gorilla. And God was kind of shocked. He kind of threw him back. It's like, that was, I didn't see that coming. But he said, you know what? I don't care. I'll do whatever it takes. Just give me the costume. Give me the money. I'm desperate. And so the guy goes out and he puts on his gorilla costume and he's kind of confused, doesn't really know what to do. But then, of course, the first couple of people come up and start to watch the gorilla that's out there. So he kind of walks around for a second and kind of, you know, and, and starts acting like a gorilla. And, and, and then more and more come and he starts kind of beating his chest and, 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 and then more show up and he starts to, to swing on the tire swing and climb and, and hang from tree limbs and all this sorts of stuff and people are loving it and, and, and weeks go by and this guy actually kind of likes his job. And he loves doing what he's doing and he got pretty good at it. And so one day, man, the numbers are growing. People are coming all, from all over wanting to see this crazy gorilla doing his cool act. And so finally, uh, one day he says, well, all these people are here. I'm going to do something new for them. I'm going to do something even better. And, and so he decides he's going to climb way up high to the top of one of his, his uh, 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 deals that's there for him to play on. And he climbs up to the top and he grabs a rope that's tied to the top of this little tower. And he decides he's going to swing way out. So he pushes off and he swings as, as far as he can. And he starts to beat his chest towards all the people. And ooh, 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 and, and all the people are like, ooh, and ah. And they, they love it. And so he does it again. And he swings out even farther. But he gets a pain up his arm. And, and for whatever reason, he, he let go of the rope and he fell. And, and, and when he hit the ground, he looked up. And to his, his horror, he realized he had just landed in the lion's cage. And sure enough, he looked up and there was this massive lion that was prowling right towards him. And he started to panic. He's freaking out and he starts to look around. He sees some, some people, onlookers, and he's trying to get their attention but still kind of stay in character. But he doesn't know what to do. And the lion's getting closer. And finally, he just drops the act entirely. And he just starts to yell, help, help, help. And the lion, as soon as he heard his voice, pounced right in front of him, raised a giant claw, opened up his huge mouth and said, shut up, you fool. You're going to get us both fired.
Yeah, I know it's bad. <laughs> Better than Trent. <laughs> Listen, listen. All right. This, we laugh at that, and we laugh sometimes at, at the foolishness of people who, who put on a show. But here's the deal. I don't want you to take this lightly, okay? Uh, God doesn't take this lightly. When you look in Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, here's what God says about the hypocrite, the person who, who goes around and dresses up in costumes and dresses up and looks like the rest of the world some other time during the week and then on Sundays comes in here and sits in the church. You know what Paul says about that? I mean, what God says about that. Look at this, listen. Revelation 3, 15, 16. I know your deeds, says the Lord. You're not fooling me. He says, I know that you're neither hot nor cold. He says, I I wish you were either hot or cold. But because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. That is some strong words from our Lord, isn't it? And any time that our Lord starts to speak like this and use this kind of language, uh, uh, folks, we better listen. Because he's trying to portray a very important message here. And we don't want to get on our Lord's bad side, do we? And so, here's, here's what he says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Listen, ever since I was a kid, I've always loved deep sea fishing. I wanted to go, I just thought it was the coolest thing, and so I, uh, Dad and I actually had a chance to go uh, sometime in the past, but it didn't pan out, it didn't work out, and so I didn't get to go, and I was disappointed, and, and so years and years go by, and now I'm married, and Avery and I took our one-year anniversary recently. And guess where we went? We went to Gulf Shores. And so guess what I got to do? <laughs> I got to go deep sea fishing. And I was so excited. And uh, before I get to, to the story, there's something that many of you probably know. Uh, there is not another family on the face of the earth that gets as carsick as the Bromley family. Okay? Uh, now, now, youth, all of you, how many of you went to the Dominican with us? Raise your hands. All right, so all of you, all the Bromleys are raising their hand. Uh, all of you know how every time we traveled somewhere and had to go on the bus, the front of the bus was always reserved for the Bromley family. And you'd hop on the bus and you'd look, and there in the front was Karen and David and Avery and Nathan and Hayden, and I was up there too. And, 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 and so then uh, they're all passing around their Dramamine and their ginger trying to prepare for the adventure. And it, it was an adventure. Uh, and, and, and so, Avery and I both heard that from, probably from a lot of you folks out here, okay, who, who look at you and say, well, uh, you won't get sick. You see, I, 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 you just got to take this certain Dramamine, it's what I took, and I get car sick, and if I could have made it out there deep sea fishing, I, I know that you'll make it too. All of you who said that, you lied. <laughs> All right, you ought to be ashamed. <laughs> Bless her heart, we got out there in that water and Avery just threw up and she threw up over and over again. And uh, I just, it got to the point where I didn't really know what to do. And, and sometimes I'd think, well, okay, it's getting better. And I'd look at her and say, Avery, are you feeling better? And, Bleh. Nope, nope, not better yet. And it, it went on and on. And, and, and the waves were rocking, the boat was rocking, our, our knees were sore for a week trying to hold ourselves up while we're casting because it was rocking so much and she just bleh, 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 over and over again. And uh, 
<laughs> I felt so bad. Guys, there's not a, a worse feeling in the world, is it, than when your wife is, is sick as a dog and you can't do anything to fix it or make it better? You know, there's not a feeling that's worse than that. And, and so I, uh, I finally realized, you know what, I'm just making it worse. Every time I ask her a question, she throws up more anyway. So I did what any loving and compassionate husband would do. And I picked up my rod and reel and casted it back out there and kept on fishing. <laughs> I'm glad I have a forgiving wife. And, and, and the worst part of the story is that she ended up catching more fish than I did. I kid you not. Uh, look, when God says right here in Revelation 3 and verse 15 that a person who goes on Facebook and they go and they check that box, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, and then they start posting all this junk underneath their profile and they start living and looking just like the rest of the world does. He says, you made me so sick, it's like I'm out in the middle of the ocean on a boat that's being tossed around in the waves and I'm so queasy that I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. Our Lord is saying some strong words here and we better pay attention. He says the person who dresses up so nice on Sunday morning and comes in here and starts to sing and praise the Lord and give Him glory and sit here and listen to the sermon and amen and clap during the lesson and then all that kind of stuff. He said, and then you go home and on the way home you, you're cut off by a driver and you turn around and you flip him off. He says, that makes me so sick I want to vomit you out of my mouth. The, the, the person who prays before their meal and, and, and God bless this food and we love you and we want to live for you and they pray all these prayers and then turn around and they go to work or go to school and they start cursing with all their friends. He says, you make me so sick. I'm, it's like I'm on the middle, in the middle of the ocean on a boat and I'm getting nauseated by your actions. Our God does not take this thing lightly, does He? Friends, it, it's crazy. We're losing the battle in our culture today, Christianity, we're losing the battle. And you say, well, that's impossible because Jesus has already given us the war. Well, that's, that's the crazy thing about it. We are losing the battle. Christianity has such a bad taste and a bad rep now in our culture, doesn't it? And why is that? Well, it's because there's so many Christians who check that box and say, you know what, I am a Christian. But then they just, they, they open up their mouth and they speak words of the world. They don't speak life. Do you see that? And it's, it is killing the name of Christianity. And here's what God says. I would rather you be lost. I would rather you just go and, 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 and just, you know what, go ahead and be lost and go to hell, he says. Then to call yourself a Christian and act like a Christian and go out there and live like the rest of the world because not only are you hurting yourself now, you're hurting everybody else who's out there looking at you and they say, oh, if that's what Christianity's like, I don't want any part of that. And so here we are, showing the world that Christianity looks just like they are. And that they don't have to change, they don't have to live any differently. And God says, it makes me sick. So what does Paul say? He says, we need to be genuine Christians. We need to put on the belt of truth. So my question for you is, are you wearing the belt of truth? Or do you look like the rest of the world? We want the church to grow, don't we? We want to make a difference in our culture, don't we? I know we do. Well, then we need to act like a Christian acts, not just on Sunday morning, but every single day of the week. Christianity, guys, Christianity is not an act that you come and perform on Sunday morning. Christianity is a lifestyle that you live every single day. So first Paul tells us, put on the belt of truth. <laughs> and we need to, don't we? For the sake of our culture. Secondly, he says, 
put on the breastplate of righteousness. Look back at 14. He says, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. And then he says, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Let me ask you, what does a breastplate do? It protects your heart, doesn't it? It guards your heart. And so when Paul is telling us that we need to put in place the breastplate of righteousness, this is pretty essential because your heart's pretty important, isn't it? And and we want to guard our hearts, don't we? I was watching this YouTube video last night about an American soldier, and he was standing outside his car on patrol. and, and, And as he's just watching cars go by, and he's in Iraq, by the way, and as he's watching the cars go by, He all of a sudden drops to the ground. You know what happened? He got shot right in the heart by an Iraqi sniper. He hits the ground. You know what he does? He stands right back up, picks up his gun and starts firing at the guy and goes and takes cover. Why? Because now apparently our technology that has developed with these breastplates, these these bulletproof vests is so good that when we get shot, we don't die. We just stand right back up and keep on fighting. Don't you think the breastplate's pretty important? You see, uh, uh, folks, listen, we've got to guard our hearts. Satan wants nothing more, listen to me, than to mix up our values. You see, Satan doesn't care if, if we love and worship him just as long as we don't love and worship God and place value in God. Satan, he's the great deceiver and he's out to mix us up and to mix our values up. And so often because we don't guard our hearts, we fall right into his trap. Satan's out there, he's kind of like the guy that goes into a, a, a store and he starts switching all the price tags around and, and, and placing this over here. It says, oh, this is valuable, this is worth 2000 and, and And a lot of times Christians are the fools, not always, but sometimes we're, we're foolish and, and, and not wise and we fall right into the trap, don't we? And we end up spending $2,000 on a little old piece of gum. And, and Satan's over there and he's laughing and saying, yeah, I got them, I got them. And his job is done because he's mixed up our values because we didn't guard our hearts. Uh, look, we have got to place value in the things that truly matter and not get wrapped up in the things of this culture. There's so many of us who, who find value in, in, in pornography. We find value in, in alcohol. We find value in drugs. We find value in all these different things of the world. And Satan goes around and says, yeah, that's valuable. You need to spend your time and your money and your energy on these things. And maybe it's not something that's bad. Maybe it's just school. Maybe it's work. And he says, this is valuable. You need to have a good life and raise your kids up and, and spend money and time. Yes, those things sometimes are important. But if we spend all our time on those things, more time on those things than we do on the war, then Satan has fooled us. And we're losing the battle. We need to guard our hearts with a breastplate of righteousness. Folks, God didn't so love money. He didn't so love stuff. He didn't so love his job. He didn't so love his car. He didn't so love his house. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He placed value on human lives. He placed value on us. You and me. And he spent and proved that he placed value on us because he paid more for you and for me than we've ever paid for anything else in our entire lives. By sending his son to die for you and me. See, God places values on souls, on human lives being saved and brought to him. Where do we place our value? And I pray, I pray it's on the same thing. I pray that we guard our hearts against the great deceiver. I wish I could just keep going and going, and, and, and this is some great material here, but uh, my time's wrapping up. I want to challenge you with this. Uh, put on the belt of truth, firstly. 
Don't just act like a Christian on Sundays. Live it every single day. Be a genuine, authentic Christian. And not only that, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Guard your hearts and place value and love only on the things that truly matter. Now, uh, one more thing and then we'll close. Righteousness, I think Paul totally understood. I know he did because he says so in his other books. That, that and he, says here, and he actually says it here in Ephesians. That, that there is nothing that we can do to achieve righteousness ourselves. You see, the breastplate of righteousness, yes, Paul, when he said that, was expecting us to live righteously, to guard our hearts, place value in what he placed value in, but there's also an understanding that we can't make ourselves righteous. So how do we put on the breastplate of righteousness? How do we get in right standing with God? It's not by anything that we do. There's not enough prayers that you can say. There's not enough good things that you can do. There's not enough church services you can attend, songs that you can sing, scriptures you can quote that's going to get you to where you need to be. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27, Paul tells us how to get there. Paul tells us how to put on the breastplate of righteousness. He says, but for all of you who were baptized into Christ, you have clothed yourself with Christ. That's how you're made righteous. And and so for those who may be sitting here this morning and you're saying, wow, I'm not ready for the battle. I pray that you will, will get right with God. By being baptized into Jesus Christ this morning for the forgiveness of your sins. And maybe you're sitting there and you're a Christian and and, and you love the Lord and you want to live for Him. But you look at yourself and say, well, I haven't been living the way I ought to. I've been acting one way here and another another out there. I pray that, that you will see that as the dire issue that it truly is. And that you'll come forward this morning and repent. I love you. I thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to speak. And if you have any need, won't you come? As together we all stand and sing.